Very few people have seen someone get hit by a car. There's a movie from 1998 called Meet Joe Black. Kind of a weird film that combines romance and fantasy. I don't remember being particularly impressed by the movie itself, but there's one scene that's stuck in my head forever. If you've seen it, you probably know the scene I'm talking about. Two young people, played by Brad Pitt and Claire Forlani, meet by chance at a coffee shop, and there seems to be a rare connection between them. They leave the shop and have a few awkward words on the sidewalk before they go their separate ways. The scene is really quiet, the soundtrack is calm, and both of them are walking away even though it's obvious that they have thoughts and feelings that they want to express. As Brad Pitt stands in the street and watches her disappear around the corner, he wonders about what could have been. And suddenly, we hear the blast of a horn, and a car hits him, causing him to fly into the air. Before he hits the ground, another car coming from the opposite direction hits him again. I just remember that scene because it goes from being so calm to such a horrific, jarring accident. My guess is that's what it's like for most people who witness an accident such as this when a vehicle strikes a pedestrian. It's often completely unexpected. Rosie, my guest today, can attest to this. She witnessed someone being hit by a car and she was there afterward, trying to do whatever she could to help. But her story offers a different perspective about seeing this type of accident, because Rosie was in the car. Real people in unreal situations. There is a girl hanging by her broken leg from the telephone wire. And I called 911 and I said, I found a baby. I turned around. I see a gun pointed at me close enough I could touch it. She would hold our heads underwater all the time. He levels the gun, pulls the trigger, and I go down. Her eyes were full of tears. She didn't want to leave us. My hair catches on fire. I swear to God, this, is, this image is burning my head for the rest of my life. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Hey, it's Scott, and guess what? You're about to hear an ad, and that's both good and bad. It's good because ads are what make it possible for me to keep bringing you these episodes, and it's bad because, well, maybe you don't like listening to ads, and I get that. And the good news is, you don't have to. When you sign up to support the show, you get every single episode without any ads. Plus, you get all the bonus episodes. Yeah, did you know there are actually bonus episodes? And you can try it all for free just to see what it's like. If you're on an iPhone, just go to the What Was That Like podcast and at the top, click on Try Free and you're in. On Android, just go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus and try it out completely free. Once you've had the ad-free experience, you'll see why hundreds of other listeners are already doing it. But for now, here's another ad and then on with today's episode.
I'll confess, sometimes I let my podcast playlist get out of hand and I get way behind. But there's one show that I subscribe to and any new episode goes right to the top of the queue. That's the Jordan Harbinger show. That's because I never have to figure out, okay, is this one going to be interesting or do I wait for the next one like I do for some shows? Because Jordan's conversations are always a must listen for me. He talks to fascinating people from any category you can think of. Authors, scientists, athletes, you name it. He's talked to undercover cops who posed as mafia and the actual career mafia hitmen. And the stories he gets out of these people, just incredible. In one episode, he talked to Paul Holes. You might know that name if you're into true crime. He's the former investigator who uses really advanced methods to solve cold cases, including the Golden State Killer. And another one I really enjoyed was with Sam Harris, an author and neuroscientist who promotes skepticism, and he doesn't mind taking on some seriously controversial topics like politics or religion. That one's going to make you think. Whenever a new episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show pops up, I already know it's going to be an episode that I'll enjoy listening to, and I'll bet you will too. For some episode recommendations, check out jordanharbinger.com start. Or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Rosie, you said this happened at the end of a long day. What had happened that day? On that day, I had spent the day doing my university degree. I had a day full of classes and my husband at the time, Louis, was commuting about three hours return to work and so he'd had a full day at work. He'd just gotten home and without really saying much to each other, we, we piled into the car with our two dogs and set off for our walk before having a, a quiet night in to, to recuperate after our long day. Is that kind of an, a normal routine that you you drive to the dog park? Yes, the dogs get two walks a day without fail, rain, hail or shine and we yeah, at the end of each day we hop into the car and drive. we go to a few different spots but yeah, we usually drive somewhere just to get their energy out um at the end of each day. Can you just describe that trip? You said there was no you weren't talking, the radio wasn't on, it was just were you kind of just zoning out sort of? Definitely. We normally do talk about our days and the radio will be going, the dogs will probably be barking at things they see out the window. But this particular day, we were both just exhausted. We didn't have the radio on. We weren't talking. The dogs were quiet. Everything was peaceful. The conditions for driving for us were absolutely perfect, which is quite rare for us. So it was a really calm start to the drive. And Louis was driving. Correct. So you're in the front seat on the passenger side. And we should explain, this is Australia. The listeners probably picked up on your accent already. You guys drive on the left side of the road. Yes. So we drive on the left side of the road and the driver's seat is on the right side of the car. So we had just turned out of our street and um, we were only 350 meters away from our house and we noticed a bus that was traveling in the same direction of the road as us had pulled over up ahead to let passengers out. And 
we continued driving, not thinking much of it, and as we passed the bus, that's when we were involved in a collision. The second we came level, the front of our car came level to the front of the bus within no time to really respond or react. I just saw a blur of colour just step in front of of our car simultaneously and that's when the impact occurred and at the time I didn't know I knew it was someone but I didn't know anything more than that I just saw color and and then the impact how fast were you going in Australia we were going 60 kilometers an hour and in miles per hour that's about 37 miles an hour so it's not going particularly fast. It's pretty. It's a pretty common speed for regional streets um, where I live, but it is still quite an impact to, to have a collision with, with someone. Obviously, Louis must have hit the brakes pretty quickly. Yes. So, I'm really proud of him. He I'm so glad it wasn't me driving because I'm a late driver and I find driving quite stressful and He's been driving for quite a long time and his, ref- his reflexes were just fantastic. He hit the brakes instantly and we came to a stop. We did skid for quite some time, but we did eventually come to a stop and I'm so proud of how he responded to the situation. When I realised that we had hit someone, I just my body just went into absolute protection mode and I just screamed. I screamed for so long to the point where in the following days I had blood in my throat. So my initial response was screaming and then I just turned to Louis and I just repeated to him over and over again, it's not your fault because I wanted him to know that no matter what happened in the situation, I knew that it wasn't his fault and I acknowledged it. I just wanted him to have those words because we didn't know what we were going to be confronted with when we got out of the car. I dialed triple zero before I got out and I remember there was such a delay to get out of the car because I was so shaken. I couldn't undo my seatbelt. I just remember shaking and almost dropping my phone and just trying to get myself out of the vehicle as quickly as I could. But I did dial before I got out of the car. Thank you, Tosh. Caller, what address do you need the ambulance? Um, I'm on the corner of Bellagio, Bellagio Court and Wilson's Road in Newcastle. Okay, just a moment, um, while, I bring, just a moment while I bring it up on my map. So, Bellagio Road. Okay, just a moment. Tell me exactly what's happened. Um, driving down Wilson's Road, walking our dog, and a bus stopped, and a man just took off out of the bus, running across the road, and he, we hit him. He, we hit him. So... It, Okay, so vehicle versus uh, pedestrian, is that we, correct? Yeah, so he got okay, off the right. bus we'll and instead some... of looking, yeah, he we'll just took him... off off the road. Yeah, we'll get him some help, okay? Are you with the patient now? Um, I'm not with him now. My, um, uh, okay, that's all right. How many people are hurt? Just one person. Okay, He's are you breathing? A... Yeah, that's good. How old is the patient? How old does he look? About 15. 15, okay. Is he awake? Uh, he's... Is he awake? Is he awake? He's breathing. Okay, is he's he a, coughing. Is, breathing. He, is he conscious? Is he conscious? He's conscious. Okay, is he breathing? 
He's breathing. Okay, all right. He's not responding, but I... He's, 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 not, he's got a head injury. He's okay, bleeding. So, so, ma'am, I need you to listen, okay? So okay. you said he's not responding. Is that correct? Uh, he's. I can see him breathing. He's Okay, he's ma'am, listen. Okay, ma'am, listen. So does he have his eyes open or closed? His eyes are open, but they're rolled back. Okay, all right. Are there an emergency chem- nurse on the scene as okay, well. Okay, so listen. Him. Are there chemicals or other hazards involved? Uh, no. Is anyone trapped? No chemicals. No. Okay, all right. So I'm just updating this one here for you now, okay? So just give me a moment. Are there any okay. obvious injuries? Uh, he's got head injury, bleeding from the head and the nose. Is there any serious bleeding? Uh, no. No? Okay. All right. So we do have an ambulance on its way. I need you to go over to the patient now. Stay yep. in the line. I'll tell you exactly what to do next. Do not split okay. any injuries. Do not move him unless he's in danger. For Stop moving him. Stop moving him. No, I'm on the phone to the ambulance now. Don't move him. They know you're here on the scene. They've, they've okay. moved him. Okay, so we don't want to move him. Okay. I've been told to stop moving him. Please listen. I've been told to stop moving him. I understand you're a nurse. Yeah. Okay, someone else is also on the phone at the same time as the ambulance. Okay, There's two so, people. Yeah, okay. All right, I understand. So for everyone's safety, we don't want to tell any um, bystanders to well clear of approaching traffic. If it is okay. safe to do so, um, turn on flashing hazard lights, okay? So you're doing such okay. a good job there. Um, turn your hazard lights on. So we only need one person on the phone to the ambulance. Can you tell the other person that you're already on the phone to the ambulance and we'll monitor the patient? Did you want me to hang up or do you want no, them to I hang want, up? No, I want them to hang up because we're... we're I'm being told to hang up. I know, that, but I'm being told that that phone needs to be hung up. Just say that they're already on the phone to the, you're already on the phone to the ambulance. I, yeah, it's not going to happen, sorry. There's two. There's double handling going on and, no, and I'm not being okay, listened so, to. Yep, yeah, okay, so I need you to be really firm with people and say, I'm on the phone with the ambulance, we've got the help arranged, but I need you, we need to take some control here, okay? So, okay, okay, who, who, give me one second. I'll do that now. Yep. I'm not being listened to. I'm so okay. sorry. Yeah, okay, all right. You're um, just not listening. She's touching him. There's a phone call going on. Nobody's can, listening to Can me. you get the nurse on the phone so she can listen then? Okay. Um, she's not listening. She's not listening to me. You need to, get the, you need to tell her, get on the phone now so we can give appropriate instructions. Luke, she will not get on the phone. I'm trying my best. No, she's not listening to me. Is it, who, who else is on the phone to the ambulance? Is she on the phone or...? I'm referring to someone as well. She is? Yes. Okay. Can you ask her, is she on the phone to the ambulance or who is she talking to? She's not on the phone now. I'm, I'm being ignored. I'm so sorry. Okay. All right. Let me just make some notes here. What is that, sorry? I'm just making some notes. Just a moment. I'm going to hold the phone over to her ear now, okay? Yeah, sure. I'm gonna... Okay. All right. So we do have... The ambulance arrived to give you some instructions, okay? Uh, we've got multiple callers, so we just want to... Okay, okay, all right, good. All right. So, ma'am, I need you to listen. So, I want you to just take hold of the situation. Do not splint any injuries and do not move unless he's in danger. If you can take someone for everyone's safety, to, to tell the bystanders on scene to stand while you're approaching traffic. Yeah, okay, perfect. Okay, how... So, did you witness the accident? Okay, is the patient... Okay, yeah. Okay. Um, we've got... Okay, all right. I'm doing such a good job there, okay? Do you still need to speak to the nurse? 
Yeah, oh yeah, so do. Okay, I'll pop you back on through. We've got the family involved now. I'm just going to pop you back yeah, 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 no worries. I just need some um, call okay. control there. And we've got the help arrangements coming lights and sirens. I just need, when they get right with you, I'll leave the case. Yeah, perfect. Thank you so much. You've been so so good there. Um, anything else I should note down at all? How fast is the impact? Do you know? Oh, we're probably going about 650 to 60 okay. kilometres. They're within now. They're within now. Okay, all right. I'll leave you with them, okay? All right. Thank you so much. See you later. Thank you. Bye-bye. Louis got out of the vehicle straight away and I called out to him to go over and check the situation. I wanted to check the street we were on and so when I got out of the car, I straight away went to the street to make sure I was giving them the right location because I wasn't, even though we drive past this spot daily, I'd never been there as a pedestrian and wanted to make sure that I was giving them the correct instructions and so I got Louis to go over and just quickly yell out the key pieces of information and then that's when I was instructed to go over and start um, performing first aid to the to the person. So when you approached this person, what did you see? I saw that they were quite young. I could tell that they were a teenager. They were a male. And... They were very, very injured. They had visible head trauma, terrible, terrible road rash from the impact and skidding along the road. And they were awake, but they weren't aware of what was going on. So they had their eyes open, but they were drifting in and out of consciousness and they were pale as anything. I knew when I saw this person, that it was really, really bad. I don't think he was even with it enough to be in shock. I think now knowing his injuries, I think he was dying. I think he was dying in front of my eyes on the side of the road. There wasn't a whole lot I could do in the situation. I just had to keep him still because he kept trying to stand and each time he tried to stand, he would just collapse And so I sat next to him and I just tried to keep him still. I told Louis to to go stand away. I knew that he was in really severe shock and I figured that I was probably the one out of the two of us that was more capable in that moment to deal with what I was confronted with. And so Louis stood to the side and I proceeded to support this teenager as best I could. What made you think you were the one most appropriate to deal directly with this boy as opposed to Louis? I think for me, for one, I have my first aid certificate. Two, I've been at the scene of an event before, not a road event, but a domestic violence event that happened out in the street where someone was very badly injured and I supported them and called the ambulance. And so I just felt very mentally prepared. I'd seen a lot of confronting things in my life, just being out and about in the community. And I felt in that moment that I didn't want to scar Louis anymore, that 
than he had been scarred. I, I wanted to take that burden from him and manage it myself. When I came over to him, his shoes, his lace-up runners, trainers, were in the middle of the road. His pants had come down sort of to his thighs and his jumper had come right up, right up almost over his head. So the impact had essentially tore his clothing off his body or close to being off his body. And so it took a while to sort of figure out what I was even looking at because it was it was just this pile of clothes and a person on the road. It, it was a really weird scene to be confronted with and I didn't expect to see his clothes essentially gone. He landed pretty close to the point of impact. I believe he probably would have travelled with us on the car, if that makes sense, as we were driving and then rolled off and then rolled into the gutter pretty close to the bus stop. But we travelled, even though we had hit the brakes, Louis had hit the brakes instantly, we skidded for quite some time. We we skidded almost around the corner. So when I got out of the car, I had to walk several metres to get back to him, which was surprising because I didn't realise we travelled such a distance. The dispatcher was really focused on me keeping them still. They were breathing. They were conscious in a way. There was no need to, to clear the airways. And so the dispatcher just wanted to make sure that they were lying still, not moving in case they had, you know, spinal injury and just to keep them comfortable. Although the call didn't last for very long before somebody took over the scene and made it impossible for me to carry out the instructions of the dispatcher. An emergency nurse who was off duty didn't see the accident, but I believe heard it from their house and they came out onto the street to see what had happened, went into emergency mode and completely took over the scene, probably thinking that they were helping, but the dispatcher on my phone was very, very, very adamant that I needed to get them away from the situation. One, because they didn't see it. Two, because they were going against the instructions that I was trying to to pass on to them. And it became really distressing because I felt like I had no control over the situation. And no matter what I did, this person was not listening and I was getting very, very clear and slightly aggressive instructions from the dispatcher and I was trying to pass that on to this person and they just were not hearing me. In defense of nurses, obviously they're trained medically. They have a lot of education from a medical standpoint, but they're not necessarily equipped or trained as a first responder either. What was the nurse doing that was contrary to what the dispatcher was telling you? Definitely. And, and 
firstly, you know, my sister's a nurse. I have such respect for nurses. But in this situation, the dispatcher was telling me, do not move him, do not move him. And I looked up and the nurse was moving him. And I remember the dispatcher saying to me, stop, stop, stop her from moving him. If you need to yell at her, if you need to try and remove her from the situation, please, she needs to stop moving him. And I remember somebody else had called an ambulance as well. So they were on the phone to a different dispatcher and my dispatcher was saying, this other person needs to hang up the phone. We're double handling the situation. And I remember the nurse not letting this other person hang up the phone. And so we were almost arguing. There was a lot of back and forth of me pleading this person to hang up the phone, but they felt almost threatened by the nurse and didn't want to. And I think in that situation, the nurse was the only trained medical professional. And so people felt really inclined to do what this person said. And so you can hear the desperation in my voice. I just was pleading for her to please let this person hang up the phone and to stop moving him. And I was yelling. I was waving my arms around, trying to get her away. I was quite angry. And at the one point, the dispatcher said to me, it's not working. If she's not going to listen to you, just put your phone up to her ear and I just walked over to her and I just shoved my phone in her ear and I said you need to listen to what he is saying and I could hear him through the phone just instructing her on what to do and from that moment onwards my role was to just be there and I didn't perform any medical support I just held the phone up to her ear and I just held his his hand and just squeezed it and talked to him and waited for the ambulance to arrive. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what, code 25what. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. 
That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV, and her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds. Experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. He was so out of it. He he had he was frothing at the mouth. He had blood all over his face. His eyes were different sizes. That one eye was dilated, one eye wasn't. They were rolling back. He was mumbling. He was pale as anything. He wasn't squeezing my hand back. I and I think that's why I felt so panicked because I just couldn't believe that this nurse was jeopardizing the situation like that and I felt like just screaming like he is going to die if we don't get our control get control in in some way of this situation and stop it was a real power struggle I felt and I think almost the victim was almost forgotten about in that moment it was very much who's in charge and it just felt really, really hopeless and all I could do was just hold his hand and just pray that the ambulance was going to arrive soon. What was Louis doing during this time? I have no idea. I was just not even thinking about it. I'd completely forgotten I even owned dogs and they were sitting in the back seat of our car. I'd completely forgotten about Louis. 
Louis could be anywhere for all I knew. I think he was just standing off to the side. At that point, everyone had gotten off the bus and everyone was crowding around and people, I believe, were comforting Louis. The people on the bus were fantastic. I felt really supported by them. And so I wasn't too worried about Louis. I was just focused on the immediate situation in front of me at that moment. When the boy got hit, he had gotten off the bus with two friends and they had seen the whole thing. And he lived, I found out, very close to the bus stop. And so they had run home and brought back to the scene not only his uncle, not only his grandmother, but his father as well. So three members of his family showed up. So at that point, we had myself and Louis, everybody on the bus, including the driver, the nurse, and now the family. And we also had a member of the public who had seen the accident and pulled over as well. So we had over 10 people at the scene. The family, I think, heightened the stress even more than than what it was before. You said it was his father, his uncle, and his grandmother. Mm-hmm. What did each of them do when they arrived? I remember the grandmother sat on the ledge of the gutter because the boy was in the gutter at this stage and she just cradled him, cradled his head. The uncle was pacing around on the phone and the father, which breaks my heart to this day, was leaning over his son and just speaking to him and saying, you know, dad's here, please keep your eyes open. I'm here, everything's going to be okay. Please just stay with me. And I remember just placing my hand on the father's back almost as like a comfort. He probably didn't even feel it, but I just felt so overcome with guilt. Even though I wasn't driving and it was not Louis's fault, you know, this boy ran out onto the road and he was completely hidden from our view when it happened. And so there was no way we could have known. I just felt so much guilt and shame. I just put my hand on his back and I thought, I hope that this boy makes it. If he doesn't, this is going to be one of the last images that his father has of his son. And I just felt so overwhelmed with sadness in that moment. Were you worried at all at that time about the family members finding out that it was your car that had actually hit the boy? Yes. Oh, boy. Um, A lot of my sister's friends are emergency nurses and they've been involved in abuse at the hands of family members. In very, very stressful situations, people can get violent. You know, they're seeing their, their loved one or their child in a life or death situation. They can get angry. And I was so scared for Louis. I thought, Louis will not stand a chance if this father comes after him. I just felt sick to my stomach that they were going to find out. Our car was still on the scene. It was still very, very real. And 
I was, I was, I was worried of what was going to happen and whether they would hate us or yell at us or fight us. I just thought I ran through all the scenarios in my head of what could go wrong in this moment. The ambulance did eventually show up. There might have even been two ambulances and the police as well. They loaded the boy into the ambulance. We did find out that from the family that he was 15, so I had that confirmed age, and they ended up landing a helicopter to transport him to hospital. When the family had left, the uncle remained and he came over to us and he said, I found out that it was you. We are so sorry that this happened to you. We've spoken to the police and the bus driver and it seems like he did the wrong thing and he ran out onto the road. We have no hate for you. What happened was horrible. Thank you so much for being there and helping out our child, our family member. And he gave us a hug, which I can't even explain how how much we needed that in that moment and how much I didn't expect it. You know, at that moment, we didn't know what was going to happen to this person. For his uncle to come over and give us that message was just absolutely life-changing for us for the better in that moment. What incredible kindness and empathy. Yes. You know, that they were they were thinking about you in that situation as opposed to that boy, their family member, who may not make it. From from your observation at that point when he was taken away, did you think he would survive? What were your thoughts on that? I didn't think he would survive. I didn't tell that to Louis, but I didn't think he would survive. He was so injured. And our car, we drive a very big car. We drive a big four-wheel drive ute. It's huge. I did not think he would he would make it. The way he came up over our car in the impact, I thought he would he would pass away for sure. Did you talk to any of the passengers that were on the bus? Did they see also what happened? The passengers actually didn't see. So they were all at the back of the bus. The bus driver knew what was going to happen and he tried to warn the 15-year-old what was about to happen and he didn't get to his horn in time. And we actually found out that the footage of the camera inside the bus had been reviewed and the bus driver was fantastic. He tried to warn the boy and and when it was too late, he immediately got on the radio and just started giving the code whatever to, you know, advise someone that a accident had occurred and he just re- reacted to the situation so, so quickly. Fortunately, the people on the bus didn't actually see, but they stayed anyway. They stayed for hours with us. They didn't need to. They didn't need to provide a statement of what they saw because they didn't see anything. They just heard the impact and the bus driver yelled out, "There's a kid's been hit and everybody ran off the bus. And they stayed with us and supported us through that, which was just, again, 
I'm in awe of how kind people can be. The bus had nine cameras around it. So the bus caught every angle in detail of the accident. Have you seen that video? No, I don't think I could look at it. We did have the Transport Accident Commission. We had a representative come and speak to us to interview from our side of the the story and they did explain the video to us and explained that it showed everything in in really clear detail. And something that I will mention before before I forget is that the cameras actually also showed up several cars stopping and driving away after they saw the accident. So several passers-by actually pulled in to the accident site, had a look, and then drove away. So nobody who saw the accident actually stopped. The only people that stopped to help were people that heard the noise and came out of their house or drove by after the accident had occurred. But the people that saw it happen, nobody stopped. Everybody kept on driving. I don't even know what to say about that. Yeah, it breaks my heart to think about. So we were at the scene from the moment it happened for over an hour, I would say. And the police showed up and put cones around and blocked people from travelling through and interviewed everybody. At this point, the boy had left. As I mentioned before, a helicopter had landed at a nearby oval and transported him to a hospital in a nearby city because of his injuries were just so catastrophic he needed absolute life-saving treatment. I then went over to Louis and we were both just shaking. I could not stop shaking and we just gave each other a big hug and everybody on the bus gave us a big group hug. I remember just being in the centre of this hug and just complete strangers just completely wrapping their arms around us. We then gave statements to the police and people from the bus slowly started to to leave and and hop on another bus or get picked up and and leave the scene. I had a sudden realisation that I had two dogs and they were still sitting in the car. Those poor things must have been so shaken by the impact. And so I asked the police officer if I could get my dogs out of the car, which I was allowed to. And so I called my mum and she was allowed to come into the scene and help me get my dogs home. They were really good. I thought that they would be very stressed, but I think they just read the situation and understood that now's not the time to initiate play and, and be naughty. They they just walked home really calmly. And then I went back to the scene. And I think the most heartbreaking thing for me was when the police had to escort Louis to the hospital to get a blood test to test his alcohol and and drugs levels. Seeing him drive away in the police car after experiencing something so life-altering is just heartbreaking to me. Was he scared at that moment? He wasn't scared for the results because he, he came back absolutely clean as a whistle. Nothing came up in the test. But 
it must have been really humiliating to be escorted into a hospital in front of people with two uniformed police officers who waited outside the room while he got a blood test. I can't imagine how degrading that must have felt, you know, going through something so traumatic. And I understand that that's the protocol and and they were very, very kind to us. But just going through something like that and then having to sit in a police car and have a blood test, I just felt, I wished that it was me. I wished that I could swap places with him and I could be the one going through all of this. I just felt so sad for him in that moment. You're very protective of him, aren't you? Yes. He's just, he's a very kind person and I feel like, not that I deserve to swap places, but I think I could handle it. That's how I felt, even though he's handled this accident incredibly. I just felt in that moment that I wanted to be that person and protect him from that. So Louis had left in the police car and I was told that I'd, I was able to drive my car home, which thank goodness it was only 300 or so metres because I don't know how I would have driven it home if we were any further away. I was shaking like a leaf driving that car home and I was making really silly mistakes on the road because I was just so shaken. I nearly, I had to do a really tight sort of three-point turn to get back onto the road again and I nearly drove onto the footpath because I was just so shaken and as I mentioned earlier, I'm quite new to driving. I was a late driver and our car is very big and I don't feel comfortable driving it the best of times and so driving that car home was just, it felt like it was never ending. It was probably a 30-second drive but I just could not wait to get in the driveway. And it was damaged. You were driving it with it being damaged as well. Was the windshield broken? No. Our car ended up, because of the size of it, you would not have known we'd hit someone looking at it. Our windshield was completely fine. Our front light was smashed and our front bonnet just had lots of dints across it. But that was it. So we, our car was quite untouched in the accident, although you could tell we'd been in an accident, but it wasn't clear that we'd hit something. The windshield was fully intact. There was blood on the car and I wanted to make sure that Louis didn't have to see that. And so the second I got home, I just went out with a cloth and, and some cleaner and I just scrubbed the blood and I tried to just make it look as presentable as possible. It, it wasn't a lot of blood, but it was really, it was really difficult for me to touch the car and to to clean the blood off. It was still so fresh in my mind. It had only happened an hour or so prior, but I just knew that I had to do that because I didn't know what state Louis would be in when when um, he got home because we hadn't had a chance to even talk since we were in the car together when the accident happened. We hadn't even really said much to each other. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, 
host of The Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book, listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into the Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to the Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in the Daily Book Club. Hey, this is Scott. Did you know we offer a premium feed of this show that is completely ad-free and there are bonus episodes? Go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus or just click the link in the show notes of any episode to learn more and to sign up. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can sign up right there in the app by clicking try free at the top of the episode list. And I hope to see you in the premium feed soon. The police brought him home. They were really, really fantastic. They dropped him home and they pretty instantly actually gave him and I a free road trauma counselling resource that we could use. So they were really very kind to us and knew that we weren't in the wrong and understood that this would be really traumatising and so set us up with some resources that we could use in the coming days and weeks and months. Did they have any information about the boy's condition? No. They did brief us of what would happen if he passed away. And we knew that if he passed away, there would be an inquest into his death and that we would need to provide a statement. They said that they would try and get us some information that evening. So by the time we got home, it was still light because it was summertime in Australia and the sun sets quite late. We were told that they would try and reach us that evening, whether it was in the middle of the night, they, they weren't sure, but they did tell us that they would reach out as soon as they could. We just sat in silence for most of the night and we both tried to get some sleep. I just could not stop shaking from the minute of the impact to several days after the accident, I just shook constantly. It was just, I felt like I was living a nightmare. When all is said and done and, and the quiet and the dark sets in, it's a really, really lonely place to be. Everyone around me, my city, all went to sleep for the night and I lay in bed just jolting awake at every sound every movement from Louis next to me, I was very much in the trauma response of that fight, flight and freeze, and we didn't really get any sleep that night. So when did you get more information? This bit's a little fuzzy. It was definitely a couple of days later. We'd spoken to the police more for formality reasons. The next day, just we were given access to a TAC claim for any injuries or anything that we needed to, to claim. But we were really left in the dark for a couple of days. And I just remember being like a zombie. 
I couldn't really function without knowing the state of this of this teenager. And Louis was very much the same. We just spent the next few days just telling our loved ones what had happened and just bracing ourselves for when when we got the news. And it did eventually come, but it wasn't in detail or in the detail that we had hoped. The police did eventually call Louis and let him know that he was going to live and that he had was in an induced coma and had had several surgeries and that they were bringing him out of, of the coma from memory. And they pretty much just left it at that and we never really heard from them again. Would you be able to call the hospital yourself and ask about his condition? We didn't try, although I know for confidentiality reasons, unless your immediate family, I very highly doubt that they would give us his information. So you knew that he was somehow going to survive, but beyond that, you were still without any uh, closure or information, anything. Exactly. We had zero closure. I didn't know whether he had brain damage, whether he was paralyzed. I had no idea of anything. And it was so final. They just gave us that information and good luck and have a good life. That's really how it, how it felt. Did you think about going to the hospital to visit him there? No. The, for one, the hospital was in the next city. We would have had to have traveled. We didn't actually know what hospital initially, but when we did find out, we would have had to have traveled over an hour to get there. And I didn't know, I had no idea what we'd be confronted with, whether we would, whether the family would want us there. It may have gotten very awkward, right? Yes. I mean, hello, we, we ran over your son, <laughs> you know, I just didn't, I just didn't feel like it was appropriate. And we were just in such shock. We couldn't even think about what to eat for breakfast, let alone getting in the car, which was a very traumatizing process for us now, and then drive to, to the hospital. It, it just wasn't even in our, in our minds at that moment. My mum was out with some friends and she was filling them in about what had happened, just updating them on her life. And one of the friends said, I, I know the family. I know them. And this friend said to my mum, I can send them a text message and try and get some information just for a bit of closure. And so this person sent a text message to the family and they responded and they let us know that they said he's a tough kid, he's going to be okay. We found out that he had a shattered pelvis, a ruptured aorta in his heart and bleeding on the brain. They're the three things we were able to find out and that was the only information that we were able to found, find out until just recently. Recently, we found out a bit more, but at that moment, that's all we were able to find out and that's all I had to go on for the next few months. When you heard that list of injuries, what were you thinking? I just felt sick. I just, I felt 
happy that he was going to survive. But I just, it was almost not enough. I almost needed to see him. I remember just living life as if it was a countdown to him passing away. I lived life with such anxiety that every time my phone went off and it was a number I didn't recognize, that it was going to be someone calling me to tell me that he died. It was a really weird limbo period that I've only just gotten out of now. I think I was just, because I saw him, I was just so certain that something was going to go wrong. He was going to have brain bleed or have a stroke or something was going to happen and he was going to die. I was just sure of it. And I know that sounds really grim and I certainly didn't want that to be the case, but I just thought there is no way that a teenager can be hit at such a speed with such a big car and have the injuries that that he's sustained and survive. That's where I was at. When you sent me your message, you questioned if you really wanted to know those answers. What was your thought process there? Post the accident, I went through a lot of stages, almost like grief in a way. And when I started to get through those initial primal protective responses, I got to the real emotional trauma of it. And while I, in one sense, I really wanted to know, I felt like I couldn't move on without knowing, but I was so mentally fragile and looking back on it, mentally unwell from the accident that I feared that if I was told that he's paralyzed and he'll never be able to do X, Y, Z, I don't know how I could keep living my privileged life knowing that information. And that is something that I really envied in Louis. Louis is very black and white, which serves him well in some circumstances. And as soon as he knew that legally he was not liable for the the injuries caused, he felt very sad for the family, but he was really quite easily able to move on. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. He was devastated. He felt horrible, but he just saw no other way than to just put it past him and to move on. But for me... I went through such complex feelings of emotion and do I want to know? No, I don't. I can't live with myself if I find out and it's it's not what I was hoping for. And although I wasn't driving, I felt like I was stuck on this horrible roller coaster and I couldn't get off. And I was just as guilty in a sense because I was in the car and it really took over my life in a lot of ways. Obviously, it's normal to feel terrible for what happened, but you must understand now that the feelings that you have don't need to include guilt. Mm-hmm. I, I think about it like this. If you were a person who witnessed the accident, you know, like a just a bystander nearby, you'd feel terrible. You'd maybe, and obviously traumatized seeing something like that happen. And you, of course, you'd wish it, didn't happen. It hadn't have happened. But you wouldn't feel any guilt because you were just a bystander. So I think of it like you as the passenger in that car 
are guilty of what happened the same as that uninvolved bystander, which is not at all. I know it's difficult to feel that way since it happened to be your car. Have you been able to work through that? Yes, I have. I've had a lot of counseling. I think I kept, you know, I'm someone who's who's suffered from anxiety my whole life. And one of my biggest traits of anxiety is what if, what if this, what if that and, and dwelling. And I, I dwelled a lot. I, I thought, why couldn't I undo my seatbelt? Why wasn't I the first one to call triple zero? Why couldn't I have gotten control of in control of the situation when the nurse was trying to help, but maybe hindering the scene a little bit? You know, just I just kept thinking, why, why, why? And in hindsight, and through a lot of work post accident, I realised that I did what I thought was best in the situation, and I was also battling against really innate protective factors that we have in ourselves to protect ourselves from trauma. I couldn't undo my seatbelt because I was shaking because my body was trying to protect myself from what it just witnessed. All of those things that happened were things that were out of my control and the things that were in my control. I tried my best to, you know, assert my my support and my stance in the situation and I know that I'm not at fault now and I and I don't feel guilty now but for quite a long time I did and I just felt like how am I going to live a normal life after this I was so in the depths of of despair that I didn't know how I was going to be normal again or my my version of normal again you had mentioned that the police gave you a resource, a road trauma counseling service. I don't know if we even have that here in the United States. Were you able to get into that and did it help? I was able to get into that, but it took a really long time. I don't know whether it's government run or whether it's not for profit, but it is a free service. Even if you've just witnessed an accident, even if you weren't involved for the people on the bus, for example, If you've witnessed a traumatic accident, you've been involved in a traumatic accident, you've lost someone, even if you weren't involved in the accident but you've lost a loved one and you need to talk about it, you can call them. You don't need to prove anything. You just need to ring up and say, I was involved in a really, really traumatic accident and I need support. And I called them the day after the accident. Louis didn't speak to them at all. He was able to just move, move on with his life and he has done so really successfully. But I called them the day after, although because they are a a not-for-profit sort of service, they don't have a lot of funding. And so it actually took me nearly two months to get any professional mental health support post the accident because there was such a long wait list. And I am just so glad that from years and years and years of my own therapy that I had tools that I had equipped myself with over the years to cope in the meantime because I don't know what Rosie five years ago would have done if she had to wait nearly two months for any, you know, mental health support. So it was a really long slog. I remember you told me once earlier that some of your friends and family offered no support. Why do you think that was? Did they just not understand your trauma or what was going on there? 
I don't think they understood the trauma. And quite frankly, I haven't understood friends' trauma in the past until you've been through a situation like mine or or any traumatic situation. You don't understand. And I don't have any hate or anger towards these people now, but it was a really, really lonely time and something that is as common as road trauma but unique in a way, you're not going to speak to many people who have hit somebody. And I think people just didn't know how to relate. It's not like, oh, I have cancer or, you know, I got hit I got hit on my bike or something. I feel like they're more relatable things. But I was in a car and a, a child stepped out in front of my car. I, I don't think people get it. And I think a lot of people had the opinion of, well, he lived. I don't know what what the problem is. Just he's you should be happy he's alive. And so the people that I did tell were really good in the first couple of days, but then they just sort of dropped off and – Trauma lasts for forever, really. You never truly get over it. You can learn how to cope with it. You can learn how to make the most of it, but it's with you forever. And I did at times feel abandoned from by the people in my life. From your impression of them, did, you, did they think that you were just being overdramatic or did they just not know how to help or what to say and it was easier to just avoid you? Um, I mean, I am a dramatic person. I don't think they thought that I was being overdramatic. I'm very, very good at putting on a mask. I mean, I took one and a half days off work after this accident and came straight back to work and sat an exam the next week. I think people saw me getting on with life and just never thought to really ask. I did have a couple of people checking in you know, and there were friends that I was honest with saying, you know, this is really hard. I'm really struggling right now. And while they were definitely comforting, nobody stopped by at the house. Nobody sent a card or flowers. Nobody called me. Nobody, you know, sent food to, to help us for the coming days after the accident. I, it was like it had never happened, you know, and I did have texts from people checking in saying, how are you going? But it felt kind of tokenistic in a way, you know, a checkbox to say, I've let them know to to say if they need anything, tick, that's my part done. But I think people don't realize that when you're in the midst of something like this, you're often not in the place to be able to ask for help. The last thing you are able to do in that moment is to reach out to people and to say, actually, can you come by? Or we haven't cooked food in ages. Is there a chance like that you can, if you've got time, like we can cook together even, but I just need the presence of a positive person in my life right now. And it just didn't happen. And as the days turned into weeks, turned into months, it went from getting texts here and there to just nothing at all. You're still recovering. I mean, it seems like we're talking about about something that happened a long time ago, but as we record this, 
This accident happened five months ago. Yes, five months tomorrow. And yes, it was it was not that long ago. And and as I said, it was right near our house. So I walk and drive past this location daily. Driving isn't so bad. It's being a passenger in the car is really difficult, especially if we drive past a parked bus or a big van or truck that I can't see what's behind it or in front of it. Oh my goodness, my heart races and I get this panicked feeling and I close my eyes and I clench and I wait for the impact and it doesn't happen and then I breathe again. It's it's an endless cycle and I know that it'll be with me forever and it's something that I'm just trying to 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 move through as best I can, which is crazy when you're with people who might not know and I'm going through these experiences of trauma and they don't know what's happened and I'm freaking out in the street and they're not understanding but little do they know that I'm going through a, a very public trigger or or fear response to a noise which is humiliating but also very humbling at the same time that I do have to go through these things in public sometimes because anything can can trigger me it could even be a child screaming with joy or someone closing their car door or someone dropping something in a shop i just go right back to the to the accident the counseling was really beneficial i hadn't actually spoken to anybody even my mum about the accident from start to finish One of the real feelings of dismissal that I felt from my mum, I remember it was about two days later and I was talking to her on the phone and I said to her how I was struggling that Louis wanted to move on really quickly and I was still stuck in that space. And she said to me, oh, Rosie, it happened two days ago. You need to move on. Stop talking to him about it. Just move on. And it had been 48 hours And so I talked a lot to my counsellor about that and just feeling really, really dismissed. And another thing, I told a friend and she said, well, you need to be there for Louis because it, it was much worse for him. He's the one that hit the boy. You're there as a support system and you need to put your issues aside and just be there for Louis. And so I had a lot of themes to talk about of just feeling really invisible. And I actually wasn't provided the support service for the counselling Louis was, so I wasn't given any resources. Louis was as the driver and I was just sort of the sidekick that tagged along. And so I had to really fight for my rights to and to advocate for myself. And so while we did talk a lot about the accident itself and, and how I could move through those symptoms of PTSD in a way, the later themes of my sessions were all about moving on post the accident and how I can still have relationships with these people who have let me down and not have it take over my my relationships with them and not have it be the elephant in the room all the time. You had mentioned that you got a more recent update about the boy and his recovery. What do you know now? I mentioned before we had the Transport Accident Commission. I hope I am saying the acronym right, but the TAC. 
And a representative came and they basically, their job is to represent us as the driver. And they came to interview both of us of, you know, the accident. And this was only recently, about two or three weeks ago now. They, I had to ask and and get it out, get the information out of this person, but I felt ready to know at this stage. And I gave Louis the option to leave the room, but he wanted to stay. And so we were told first and foremost that unfortunately the bus driver didn't even know that the boy had survived. So he did not get any updates from the police. He hasn't been able to work. He tried to go back to work at a different bus route and had a breakdown at work and had to go off sick and has been very traumatised by the accident. He thought it was his fault because he wasn't able to reach his horn in time, even though he's been reassured that it would have been too late regardless because the boy got off the bus and ran straight away, hopped off the bus and just ran in front of the road. There was no hesitation. So we found that out about the bus driver, which is really sad that he was waiting and he was ringing the police and ringing the hospital and nobody would give him any information. And so he thought the boy had died. So I feel very privileged for the small amount of information that we did get. But I asked of the boy's current situation and we were told that he's home now, that he essentially broke nearly every bone in his body, that he has a carer living in the house with him, that he will never be able to play and run and he'll never be able to have a physical job. He doesn't have brain damage and he didn't break his back, but he is struggling with learning to walk again and his life will forever be impacted and he will live in pain for the rest of his life. And so that was a really, really hard reminder of road safety and how your life can be changed in a split second. Do you feel like it's good that you know that information now? Or would you rather, if you could turn the clock back and not know that? I wouldn't turn the clock back and not know. I feel strong enough now to know. I've done a lot of work on myself. I mean, the fact that I've gotten through this story and not burst into tears, I feel ready to know the information. It didn't shock me as much as I as I thought it would. I didn't have a particular strong physical response. It was shocking and I felt sick thinking about it, but I didn't break down. In a weird way, I felt like this boy, his life is changed. I felt like I deserved to know that. Not again because I feel like I deserve to feel bad, even though I do, but how lucky am I to be able to just walk away from that accident and go about my life and have the ability to run and jump and play with my dogs and go for a hike. It's the least I can do to take on that burden and find out that information compared to this child who is half my age and is going to be walking with a frame and needing constant support for the rest of his life. I felt like it was the least I could do to know that information and 
it hasn't burdened me as much as I thought it would. It feels like I don't want to say closure because I don't want to be disrespectful to him and what he's going through, but I feel like it was the final piece of the puzzle and I would actually love to meet him. I hold no resentment towards him whatsoever. Not at any stage of this accident and the aftermath did I ever feel any anger towards him. I want him to know because he doesn't remember anything. He doesn't know. He doesn't remember me squeezing his hand. I don't think he even remembers his dad and nan and uncle being there. I want to put a face to the person or the people that were involved. I don't know his feelings towards us. I don't know whether he thinks we're these monsters that changed his life forever, but I want to meet him and show him that we're just two normal people and, you know, mine and Louie, our lives crossed with this complete stranger that day and we'll forever be connected because of this accident. And I just want him to know that we're, we're good people and we care about him and we, we're thinking about him. And if I had the opportunity to meet him, because I do know that he lives very close to us, I would jump at that opportunity, even if it meant being confronted with his injuries all over again. And another thing is his family didn't see the accident. So really, he has no idea what happened. Nobody can tell him. The ambulance can't. They didn't see it. You know, none of the none of the witnesses have really that I know of had as much sort of involvement in the process as us because it was our car. And so he's probably missing all of this information. The fact that the bus driver wasn't even able to get information as to whether he lived or not, I doubt they've been in touch with the bus driver. And so I think it would be really healing for both of us to meet and to share stories and and information with each other and I don't know whether Louis would be up for it he's very much moved on with his life and still feels for the for the boy and and feels terrible but for me I think I'd be very interested in that and maybe it is something that that I I will pursue and and I just hope that I mean it's a really really painful lesson to learn and I just hope that he has learned a lesson and and is a little bit more mindful when being around traffic because what happened to him was at the end of the day as sad as it sounds preventable. If you do end up having that meeting, we want to do a follow up and hear how that how that goes because I'm sure everybody listening to this will want to know how that went. And also you've mentioned that if people want to contact you, they can do so by email and we will have your email address in the show notes for this episode. One more question. Why do you feel it's important for people to hear this story? There's a couple of reasons. Firstly, to shed light on just how frequent accidents like this actually happen. And since the accident, I have actually nearly hit two people, not of my fault again. One person was on their phone and looking down and walked right in front of my car. And luckily I was driving in a 
in a street where the speed limit is much lower and I was able to slam on my brakes and I held my horn down and they had their headphones on and didn't even hear me. So they never realized what had happened and they just walked across. And the second time it happened, I had to swerve in front. I had to swerve onto the other side of the road. And luckily it was at night and there was no traffic, but I had to go into a completely wrong lane to avoid this person. And so, and these were both adults. And so it's really common. You can be jumping out of the car to run and pick your kids up from school or you can be distracted in a rush. You can be a parent who's got a kid riding up ahead on their bike and they all of a sudden roll onto the road. You just have to be careful and I want to shed light so that people realize how fragile life is and, and how a split decision can impact yours or someone else's life for forever. And secondly, I want to reach people who might know of someone who's going through something or maybe you've got a friend who's been a little bit more distant than usual. Check in on them. They might be feeling really lonely or going through a tough period or going through trauma themselves and a kind message and and support can mean the world to someone. Please don't ignore those warning signs of people that are going through a tough time. Even if you're not certain, just reach out and make yourself available. Don't just send the message of, if you need anything, let me know. Actually make yourself available to them. I think that's really, really important. You know, the thing I really loved about hearing Rosie talk about this is that it's really practical advice. I mean, we all know people at times who are going through something and really need someone. In fact, that's when people need the support of others around them more than ever. And yet it's so easy to abandon them or think they should just get over it. For me, I'm going to make a deliberate effort to get better in this area. When someone I know has been through something traumatic and they're telling that story later on, and part of the story is that a lot of people ignored them, but one or two people stepped up to be there for them, I want to be one of those few people. I think you would want to be too. It just takes deliberate intent and action. So let's do it. You can get the full transcript for this episode as well as pictures of Rosie and Louie and their two dogs, Ted and Frankie, in the episode notes at whatwasthatlike.com slash 161. Raw Audio Episode 37 is now live. I love creating these bonus exclusive episodes for supporters of the podcast. Each one is three stories, including the 911 audio that happened during that emergency. In this episode, you'll hear a woman panicking after a machete attack. Who did it? My, my kid's father. Okay. My kid's father, ma'am. Okay, and where did he go? What type of car is he in? I don't in? know where he left. I don't know where he went, ma'am. A man called because he and his girlfriend are stranded outside in a snowstorm. Please help us. My girlfriend is really freezing out cold. We can't get out of here. You can't get out of where? We can't get out. We don't know if we are al- They don't speak English or anything. They don't. 
and after police leave her house, a woman calls 911 to have them come back because she thinks one of them is cute. Could you throw them back my way? Do you need them to come back there? Oh, I'd like that, yeah. Why do you need them to come back there? Well, because I have an emergency. I'll I'll think of something. If you want to hear that full episode and binge the previous 36 episodes, you can do that by signing up for What Was That Like Plus, and you can try it for free. On an iPhone, just go to the What Was That Like podcast feed and click on Try Free. On Android, go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus. Just try it for free and see what you think. Graphics for this episode were created by Bob Bretz. Full episode transcription was created by James Lai, and they both do amazing work. And now, this week's listener story. If you're new to the show, this is how we end every episode, with a story sent in by a listener. If you have an interesting personal story that you can tell in about 5 to 10 minutes, record it on your phone and email it to me so we can all enjoy it. Scott at whatwasthatlike.com The one you're about to hear is from my friend Marcus. He's a personal fitness and nutrition coach. As an aside, I've been sort of half-heartedly trying to drop 20 pounds for the last three or four years. I started working with Marcus as my personal coach, and guess what? It finally happened. If you think you might benefit from the advice and accountability of having a coach, let me know. I have an affiliate arrangement with him so I can connect you and he can tell you how it all works and you can decide how you want to proceed. In this listener story, Marcus tells about the time he completely shocked his girlfriend by proposing. Stay safe and I'll see you back here in two weeks with the final episode for 2023. In June of 2019, I decided it was time to propose to my girlfriend of four years. As most guys, I had no idea how I was going to do it. I knew I wanted it to be truly special, and I wanted it to be recorded somehow. I wanted to really, really surprise her. My initial thought was actually just do it in Colorado while we were hiking. That's where I first told her that I loved her, and it seemed like the perfect setting. But in thinking more about it, it just seemed too generic, too basic. My next thought was to reach out to our favorite band at the time the Lumineers, to see if they could help me propose because we were going to the Bonnaroo Music Festival a few weeks later and they were performing there. But after a few attempts, I never got a reply from any of the band members. Then it hit me. The ring that I was going to get Nicole was actually at a jeweler that I had a connection with down in Atlanta. And it just so happened that Nicole and her boss were getting ready to leave for a work trip in Atlanta. They were actually leaving a few days from the time I had the thought to even propose this way. So I had a lot to figure out and I had to do it fast. So I called Nicole's boss and told her my plan. I would fly down early in the morning on the last full day of the whole trip. They would actually be at the same venue of the jeweler. So we would have to coordinate on where they were in the venue at all the different times that I was going to be there. So I could sneak in to pick up the ring and sneak back out. Then that day, after they finished working, her boss was going to take her out to a nice dinner at STK in downtown Atlanta, a really nice steak restaurant. Once they got seated, she would then text me and I would come into the restaurant and ask the hostess to follow behind me and film my proposal. Her boss loved the plan and she was all on board to help me do anything and everything I needed to do to make sure that this proposal went off without a hitch. Now that I had coordinated with the jeweler and I had my plan set, I needed to get Nicole's parents' blessing. 
So a day prior to what would be the day that I ended up proposing, I called Nicole's dad to see if I could swing by after I got off work that day. At this point, Nicole was already out of town and she was already down in, in Atlanta. I didn't tell him um, you know, what I was coming over for, but he had an idea. At that point, we'd been dating for a handful of years and he probably you know, expected this would be about the time that I would be proposing. I told him my plan. I asked for his blessing and of course he said yes. He couldn't have been more excited and he just absolutely loved the plan. I called Nicole's mom after leaving her dad's house to go over to meet with her and her husband, Nicole's stepfather. And I followed those same steps, which resulted in her mom immediately being overcome with tears of joy and a huge yes. So great. I had both blessings. I had the plan with the jeweler and I had a plan with Nicole's boss. But now I had to put the plan into full action. So after getting both of those blessings, I booked my plane ticket for 5 a.m. the next morning. The hardest part of all this was not slipping up and giving anything away to Nicole. She can read me like a book, but I played it cool and she never suspected a thing when I spoke to her that night on the phone. I woke up at 2 a.m. the next day, too anxious to sleep. I put on my best suit and I got to the airport. I arrived in Atlanta. I dropped off my bags at the hotel and went to the Atlanta apparel market, which is where that jeweler was located, along with where my wife and, and her boss were already at doing all their buying for their, their local clothing boutique. The building is set up kind of like a huge vertical mall with an open atrium so that you can actually see all the other people walking around all the other levels. So Nicole's boss and I had to coordinate every time we were moving around the building so that I would avoid being caught. I had to get in and get out as fast as I could without my wife being able to see me from across the, the venue. So I did it. I got in, I got the ring, and I got out as fast as I could. At this point, I still had a few hours left before dinner, so I went and got a good workout in. Then I came back to the hotel, took a nice shower, got fully dressed again, and just sat there anxiously sweating, waiting on her boss to let me know when they were going to be at dinner. Her boss texts me. I get in my Uber, and I head that way. I walked in like a man on a mission. I was fully already sweating through the shirt underneath my suit jacket in anxiousness. I asked the hostess to follow me to the table while recording on my phone. I get to the table with the hostess following right behind me filming. And I said, hey, Nicole. And her first response, the first thing we had on video was, what the fuck are you doing here? And pure shock that instantly turned to full-on blubbering tears when she saw me get down on her knee and realized what I was there to do. I was there to propose to her. I took away from the table and we sat there hugging, kissing, and her crying, just tears of joy. And I said, is that a yes? And that's how I proposed to my girlfriend. To, to my amazement, that video actually went viral, both shared on mine and Nicole's Facebooks and Instagrams. And then we actually had a bunch of other accounts that reshared that same video. What was awesome is that a few days later, after flying back home to Kansas City, we then got to celebrate by going to Bonnaroo just a few days later, where we got to watch our favorite band perform, who actually had never responded to me, asking to help them or help me propose to my girlfriend. I wanted to say thank you to Scott for allowing me to share my personal story. My name is Marcus Gates. I'm an online fitness, nutrition, and lifestyle coach, owner of Thriving Lives Fitness. I help my clients tackle their health goals through sustainable approaches focusing on balance. Through weekly accountability check-ins and reflections, I hold my clients accountable and I guide them every step of the way towards their health and fitness goals. In fact, I'm actually Scott's coach. He's been with me for, for most of 2023 and has done an incredible job of not only reaching his goals that he came to me with, but the most important aspect is that he's maintained those results that he's gotten and continues to strive and get better and better every single week. You can find me on Instagram at Thriving Lives Fitness.
all one word, and my website, thrivinglifesfitness.com. With 2024, just a few weeks away, I would love to work with you on whatever your health goals are.